I think I was supposed to already be on the stage. All right, I'm here now. It's going to be all right. Okay, so uh, Pastor Darren's not here, but I am. I'm uh, kind of sad because I didn't actually get to meet him, but uh, I'll introduce myself to you a little bit. Like I said, my name is Benny. If you hear an accent, it's because I'm from Campbell River. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I already said that joke like five times this morning, so I wasn't sure if it was going to work out. It totally did. Um, yeah, I moved to Campbell River in 2005, which is... Uh, this thing's just going. Let's go back. Let's go back all the way back. Moved to Campbell River in 2005, um, very quickly got married to a Campbell Riverite, as we do in Campbell River, and had three children, and I've got a fourth child on the way, too. Um, and in Campbell River, I go to Campbell River Baptist Church, where I serve with music and some preaching, and, uh, but that's not my day job. My, my job during the week is for the What's On Digest, I do online media, and that's why my slides are probably a little bit overkill. And so uh, I'm sorry if, I've, if I over-dazzle you this morning <laughs> with my slides. Um, but I'm going to jump right into this because, because uh, we have to like, go home eventually. And I, I brought like seven pages. So, so let's just get straight into it. Um, the sermon text that we're going to center around today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15. And we're going to be in the Bible, so hold your finger in it. Or if you're on your phone, definitely keep that open because we're going to be bouncing around. Um, and, and that's a good opportunity, actually, to say that I'm probably going to uh, inspire more questions than I'm going to answer today. Uh, because whenever, whenever this happens, somebody gets on a stage and starts talking about the Bible and Jesus, there's no way that, that we can cover everything in, in a matter of minutes up here. So it's important for you to keep reading this throughout the week and to, and to keep seeking answers to your questions as you go throughout the week. We're going to read this right now, just a very short passage. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him. Sorry. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right. So the title of this sermon is, How Can a Humble King Demand Praise? And... Uh, that's actually not the question. So the sermon series is you asked for it. That's not the question that was asked. The original question that was asked uh, actually went like this. Uh, calling Jesus a king or lord or supreme, etc., would a humble man like Jesus like that? Also, Lord Almighty, Almighty Being, and other inflated designations. That was a little bit too long for a sermon title. Um, but also, there's, there's a, an idea that's hidden in there that I wanted to cut to straight away, and I underlined it there. It's this in, this, these two words, inflated designations. So, uh, in reality, we cannot overstate God's attributes. We can't, we can't outpraise God. 
Uh, and by the way, I have to say, this place is great. I had a really nice time when I just walked in here. There was hardly anybody here, and I was greeted so cheerily. Um, here on the stage, Tina led us in praise, and it just felt like you guys were ready to go praising God early in the morning, on a Sunday morning in the summer. And that is inspiring. I was really, really blessed to see the people of God praising King Jesus in Ladysmith. It really was nice. I, got, I, got, I actually, I'm a little bit distracted thinking about how blessed I was to see that here. Um, but as I was saying, we can never outpraise God because his worth is indescribable. It's bigger than we can imagine. The biggest thing that we can imagine is smaller than God. Um, in this sermon, I'm not going to answer the questions about whether or not Jesus actually is God's Messiah. I'm just going to assume that uh, that's a, a given. I'm not going to answer the question about whether or not Jesus actually is God. I think the person who asked that question probably would like to know for real. And if, that's, if, if you're a person that doesn't know whether or not Jesus is the King and the Creator, then uh, those, are good, those are good questions for another two sermons, not this one. Um, but I do really love this question because I think it's really relevant. I just had to tweak it a little bit so that we don't accidentally, big word here, anthropomorphize it. Anthropomorphize it means like make it into a person. We do it all the time with kids' stories. We make, like Zootopia, we make an animal into a person, give them personable traits. Um, but when we do that to God, we reduce God to a person. So we never want to do that to him. So we never want to think that um, God would be reduced down to a human kind of humility. Um, but it is a relevant question. It's potentially a deal breaker if you're on the fence with your belief. And uh, C.S. Lewis pointed this out in a really cool way. Uh, he said when he was on the fence with belief and pushing against God. He said, We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue. And then, he, and then he makes this comparison about an author that presents his books to a dog and then demands that the dog bark with praise back to the author. And it's silly. And C.S. Lewis was struggling with that. He actually called it hideous. And I think that's, that's real, not just for C.S. Lewis, but for a lot of people alive right now, your neighbors. And even though you might not personally be struggling with this potential two-facedness of God, on one side humble, but on the other side needing compliments, although you might not be struggling with that, probably somebody that you know is struggling with that. So I'm going to quickly summarize the big idea for this message so that those of you who had a big night can take a nap and you'll hopefully get it all right now. So the question is, how can a humble king demand praise? And I'm going to try and answer it like this. Jesus, the humble king, demands all, sorry, Jesus, the humble king, demands our all in exchange for his life and those who have it cannot contain it. Jesus, a humble king, he demands that we give everything to him, and in exchange for that, he gives his everything to us. And when we have all of that, 
We can't contain that, which you guys demonstrated so well this morning. Maybe the most controversial part of that sentence, that sentence, is the lines, Jesus the humble demands. Maybe it's hard to imagine humility and demands in the same sentence. And that's a big deal. If that's where you are, if that's where you are, and you're wondering how those two can go together, I think that's a big deal. But that's not the main point of this answer. The main point is that life in Christ spills over when you are influenced, affected, filled up by God, King Jesus. You can't contain that. It overflows. It even overflows from God himself so that he's creating and he's always giving. All right. So I chose uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.15 because I think it demonstrates this paradox that we feel. On one hand, we see the great humility of Jesus in his sacrificial death. It says that uh, if you've still got your Bibles open, it says that he died for us on one hand. But on the other hand, it says that he did it in the same sentence. It says that he did it so that we might live for him. So he died for us, but we might live for him in the same Bible verse. We're going to hopefully, if we have time, look at the rest of that passage at the end of this message to see how and why a life devoted to worshiping Jesus actually demonstrates Jesus' humility, and it's really, really, really good news for us. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about um, what humility actually is. So picture the ground with three guys standing on it. I, I used our guy for you asked for it. And these three guys, there's one guy, and he's floating in the air, and there's another guy on the other side, and he's in the ground. And the guy that's floating, that is haughty. His opinion of himself is artificially high. His head is so inflated that he floats. He inflates the truth about who he is, and he's living in a lie, so he loses his footing. He loses his grounding. We all know somebody that's like this. Uh, if you don't, it might be you. Somebody that's, somebody that's prideful. Somebody that enjoys looking down on other people. You can probably relate to it yourself. I can. Then there's the guy in the hole. That's diffident. His opinion of himself is artificially low. He hides the truth about who he is. Maybe he's ashamed of who he is. Maybe he wants to be better, but he's not. So he's ashamed. He wants to take pride in who he is, but he can't. So he's ashamed, and he hides who he is. So he loses something, too. He's stuck. This guy's living in a lie as well. He's living in a lie about who he is. Both of them are prideful, haughty and diffident. Both suffer from pride, and that makes reality unbearable for them because they both feel like what they are is not good enough. They can't bear to live in the reality of who they are, so they live in a lie. And humility stands on the ground. He's not higher. He's not lower. He's grounded in the truth about who he is. Now, 
Humility is a guy. That means that he's made, formed out of the dust. So you could call humility dirt, uh, but he was formed by God in God's image. So you could call him dirt with purpose. So the point of this illustration is for us to see that uh, humility is not poor self-esteem. It's real self-esteem. It's not thinking too highly of oneself, haughty. It's not thinking too lowly of oneself, diffident. But it's having a real understanding of who you are. And that might look different in different contexts. Like, this is a mushroom. And mushrooms are amazing. Apparently, I did a little bit of research on mushrooms. Uh, There's over 30 species of mushrooms that actually glow in the dark. Um, and mushrooms, when they, when they spread, they spread in rings. So you see mushroom rings. That's really cool. When you see one, it's amazing. Uh, and, and apparently, I don't know if I believe this, but apparently if there was no mushrooms, the world would be covered in a layer of debris that mushrooms would usually eat. Um, but then you, you put a mushroom next to a human being, the reality about the mushroom is still the same. The, the mushroom is still, is still amazing. Um, but if that, that person scoops up that mushroom and puts it in his mouth, nobody cries, nobody has a pity party for the mushroom, uh, but that's because the mushroom isn't haughty. The mushroom doesn't say, hey, how could you do this? Don't you know who I am? But at the same time, the mushroom isn't diffident. This is a crazy metaphor now that I'm saying it out loud. <laughs> the mushroom isn't diffident. It's not saying... Oh, woe is me, I'm just a lowly mushroom. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to pop up overnight, which is also amazing. He's not haughty about, about his humble position. He's not diffident about his humble position. So the guy gets to eat the mushroom. Hooray. That is a terrible metaphor because mushrooms don't have feelings. <laughs> so what about this then? Here's, this is Moses. A guy is Moses now. And um, by the way, if I point this way a lot, it's because I have a screen back there. You guys will probably all know that, but it's helping me out. All right. So uh, here now we have Moses. Moses was the most humble man alive, according to Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And he was a humble dude. He accepted his fragile state before God. In fact, you remember he was afraid of what God was telling him to do because he, was, he, was, he understood that he was weak, a flawed guy. But at the same time, given instruction from the Lord, he stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and said, demanded, let my people go. So here's Moses, the most humble man in the world. On one hand, meek. On the other hand, bold. Humility is not haughtiness, lying to make yourself look higher. It's not diffidence, lying to make yourself look lower. Humility is living with confidence in the truth about who you are. A human might feel superior to a mushroom, and I think that's pretty fair. I think it's okay to think that, you know, if you had to save a mushroom or a little girl, you should go for the little girl. Got the, good, got the good metaphors today. Uh, compared to King Jesus, 
the word of God that spun the laws of physics into existence and set compassion and justice and love into motion in the world, I think it's fair to say that we are inferior. I think if you think that you are equal or superior to that guy, then um, you're probably the haughty guy that you, you didn't know about. So we're not equal to our creator. But how do we know that Jesus is a humble king? By the way, you can talk back to me. It actually makes it go faster. <laughs> All right. How do we know that Jesus is a humble king? That's, that's an important question. Um, humility is one of those traits that we really like other people to have. Not so much liking having it ourselves, but we really like it. You know when you've spent time with a humble person because you feel acknowledged, you feel listened to, you feel like you matter when you're in their, when you're in their presence. And so we would want our king to be someone with the best physical, intellectual, and emotion quotient possible. So whether or not God actually needs to be humble, I think that's arguable. Does God need to be humble to be God? I don't know. But we definitely, definitely want him to, right? We want to know that the one who made us, the one that keeps this world spinning, thinks about us, that he acknowledges us. We would like that to be true. So let's look at the evidence that King Jesus is actually humble. John 13, uh, verse 3, all the way to 7, or at 1 to 17, 3 to 17 here. You can start wherever you want. I'm actually not going to read it, but I put it there so that you can. It's a familiar story. It's when Jesus, it's, it's the night before Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's there with his 12 disciples. And he does something outrageous. He, he takes off his outer clothes, so he's in his undies. He puts on a towel, and he assumes the position of the foot washer boy in this room with his 12 disciples who've just been following him around for three years. And he starts to wash each one of their, of their feet, one by one. Now, Peter thinks this must be a prank. Like, we've just been following you around for 36 months because, because you're the Messiah. You can't just, you know, pull a prank on us now and say, ah, psych, I'm just a foot washer. <laughs> no, you're the Messiah. I, you, I should be washing your feet, not you washing mine. So Peter gets it. Um... And Jesus affirms, if, you're, if you've got that open in your Bible right now, Jesus affirms that reality. Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, not me. I'm not your master. I'm not your teacher. He affirms that reality. Yes, I am who you say I am, but I'm doing this so that you know the legacy that I'm leaving for you. If I'm doing this, then you ought to do it as well. This is our humble teacher. Jesus affirms that reality, but not without acknowledging each individual disciple in a personal, personal and intimate way that showed his physical and emotional commitment to them. 
And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, Paul adds some color and illustrates Jesus' intellectual commitment to us. So here, um, maybe we can read that one. Yeah, let's read it. If somebody else gets there faster than me, then you can read it. Philippians 2, 4 to 11. All right. Listen to Paul's words to the Philippians. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was coming from the heights of heaven, bending down, to become a servant to his creation. The embodiment of God Almighty was suffering to pay the price of sin. Your sin, and your sin, and your sin. He went down to suffer the price of your sin and my sin. That is deep personal, intimate humility. All right. So then there's this. This painting, Michelangelo's Creation of Adam, always really confused me. I actually didn't know it was called Creation of Adam. I just thought it was a painting of God and a naked guy. <laughs> and, uh, and it always confused me because you know, Adam's arm looks so slack, like he doesn't care that much, which I kind of got. But then God is like, yeah, maybe you can touch my finger. Like, just not yet. And like, he's waiting for a moment. Like, boop, gotcha. And that was meant to do something wonderful, I suppose. Now, in this picture, God's reaching down to Adam. Um, I think, it's, I think that's a bad picture for us to have in our heads when we think about how God comes to us. Because God knew. Knowing that people who he had made, he had made them to reflect his glory, knowing that we have squandered his creation and enraged by treason because we've turned our back on our creator, God the King. Yet, Still loving and longing for our redemption, he sends his word into the world to take on flesh and then dwells with us as one of us, living in the mess we've made while preparing us for glory, then dying to serve the punishment for every accusation that could ever have been held against us. Think about every accusation that could ever have been held against you. Jesus came to take that accusation on himself. God doesn't just reach down 
in hopes to touch us with his grace. He climbs into the muck. He holds his breath and dives down deep into the dark and blackest part of our sin and then holds us up above him and lifts us up onto his throne where he belonged while he drowns in our sin. Is it any wonder that that is the same Jesus that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? That's a bold statement. Maybe you could look at that statement. I think this, is a, I think this wouldn't be unusual to look at that statement and think, that's a self-centered statement. But this is our rescuer, the only one. No one comes to the Father except for me. No one is willing to go down into the waste to, to get underneath us and push us up. No one is powerful enough to survive that, to do that for us. Okay. Does Jesus, does Jesus actually demand praise? This was weird. I know, I say weird, weird. I thought I would find a lot of Bible verses. I actually titled this sermon ahead of time, thinking I would find a plethora of Bible verses where Jesus actually demands praise. And I didn't find any. I didn't find any. There's a lot of Bible verses about worshipping Jesus. In fact, all of the songs that we sang... Uh, right here, just minutes ago. Not all of them. There was one that wasn't, but four out of five of them were Bible verses about praising God. Um, but I couldn't find one where Jesus demands that we praise him. Instead, he demands everything. He demands all of our life. Not our compliments. He demands that instead of remaining in our sin that we hand that over to him and live in him alone. That's called a life of worship. So we look at Luke 9, 23 to 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Romans 12, 1 says, Paul speaking adds a bit of color to what Jesus was saying there. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you're like, if this is amazing to you, like it's amazing to me, then it's cool to just like let out an amen. That's, that's fine by me. I get really excited by this stuff while I'm writing it down. I'm like, amen, amen, amen. So you're welcome to do that too. Worship. Worship is a, is a weird word. It means a lot of things. Um, to get our minds around maybe like the round idea of what worship is, you can think of what you ascribe the most worth to. Worthship. What do you ascribe the most worth to? Or what could you not bear to live without? And think about that for a second. What could you not bear to live without? If that thing isn't Jesus, 
then that might be the thing that Jesus is saving you from. Because, <laughs> gotcha. That might be the thing that Jesus is saving you from. He might be saving you from dependency on something that cannot deliver what you were, what you were made to enjoy. And that is Him. God, you're made to reflect His glory. Nothing else can, can serve the job of the object of your worship, your worship. Only Jesus. So whether it be haughtiness or diffidence, pride tempts us to deny the reality of our God-given purpose, which is to reflect Him. And ever since Eden, we've struggled to be satisfied with what we truly are. Oh, I flipped it. We we're talking about Jesus' humility, but now we're talking about us and our struggle to be humble, our struggle to be content with what God has actually made us to be, worshipers, images of God, the reflectors of God's glory. In his sacrifice, Jesus doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He saves us into a life where we're no longer compelled to inflate who we are or to hide who we are. We can confidently be who we actually are, exactly who God intended us to be, because we're living in His purposes. We're living as He made us to live, growing in faith, being transformed by His grace and His love which is renewed for you every morning. We are made to be just like King Jesus. And unlike maybe a haughty dictator that might say, that might try to keep us low, keep us at bay, Jesus lifts us up. All right. Did you ever look at Clark Kent's face? And look at those glasses and just say to yourself, they're not doing anything. They're not disguising you at all. Yes? Just me? I actually, when I found this photo online, it was a guy that was trying to argue that the glasses totally work. But I don't think so. Maybe it's too dark. I don't, I don't think they're, they're hiding you at all. Superman. Oh, just in case you didn't know, Clark Kent with the glasses and Superman, they're the same guy. <laughs> now, why do you think, this is a real question, give me a real answer. Why do you think Clark Kent wears glasses? It's a disguise. Why the heck would Superman need to disguise himself? Okay, I hear your whispers. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe he's scared that if he takes his glasses off, people are going to come and badger him all day and he'll get no time off. Or maybe he's, actually, maybe he's a humble guy, and maybe he's worried that if he gets no time off, he'll be too tired to actually save people, and so he's got he's to take time off for other people's sake. Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Now, I couldn't find a verse where Jesus demands praise. But from the front of this book to the back of this book... It's just peppered 
with the praises of the people who live in the purpose of God. Have you ever noticed that? You can't read it for long and not see somebody say hallelujah or holy, holy, holy or something like that. If God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, was the type of hero that wore a red and blue jumpsuit like that guy, <laughs> he wouldn't have a disguise because he doesn't, he doesn't need to hide. He has nothing to hide. Jesus has seen the lining of the universe as he stretched it out with his hand. He's seen the worst of you and I. He's seen the worst of all of humanity all at once. And still, he's done the work. He's already done the work to purchase us from death, to seat us with him in glory. He doesn't need to get away from you. He doesn't need to put on some glasses and take a break. He's already gone down to the deepest part of your sin and lifted you up from there. So when we commit ourselves to this king, Jesus, in worship, praise bursts out of us. Amen? What did that lady say? How can we, when the, what was this lady's name that prayed during communion? Jackie? This is what she said. How can we thank you enough? Good question. We can't. I think that was implied. We can't. Uh, a lot of Bible verses listed right there. The first one, Luke 19.40, as a crowd in the streets, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they can't help but shout and sing, Hosanna to the King, even though the religious leaders that were there were rebuking them, they couldn't help it. Jesus was here. They were singing. <laughs> Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20.21, 20, after seeking the Lord, because there's a giant army is about to come and wipe out Judah, Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord, and he's assured that God is with them. And so he puts the choir at the head of the army to sing to the enemy. And God defeats the enemy before they even get there. Habakkuk's prayer. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stores, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in the God of my salvation." Habakkuk was saying, I got nothing. Everything's broken. But I can't help but take joy in the Lord, the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. And he makes me tread in high places. And Paul, in Philippians, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I exult in Christ Jesus in my service to God. Somehow, when our lives shift from self-focus to Jesus' focus, it lifts us up. It doesn't squash us down into forced drudgery. It feeds our souls. It lifts us up higher when we give ourselves to Jesus, the King, it lifts us up higher. When we praise the King, it actually it does something to us. It lifts us up. All right, let's get back to this passage because I think we've got to stop soon. We've got to stop soon. Okay, 
So our passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. This is just after our central passage. And what's happened here is Paul is talking to, a, to the Corinthians church. And they're like us. Um, they live in a place that's, for the time, pretty prosperous, pretty comfortable. And we live in a place in time like that too. Pretty prosperous, pretty comfortable here. Um, we, have, we have a thing here that we love. It's called the pursuit of happiness. Apparently, it's a human right. And so everybody makes it a high value in their life to pursue happiness. Um, but these Corinthians are getting confused because Jesus doesn't seem to be making their lives more prosperous and comfortable. Now, I know you've felt that. Unless your life is totally prosperous and comfortable, then you've been in a time where you're like, oh, God, could you just give me a little bit more cushion here, please? Just a little bit of softness for my lumbar would be nice. I'm looking forward to a new spine. That's a, it's going to be a great part of heaven. Amen. <laughs> so these Corinthians, they're, they're feeling worn out. Uh, when they came to Jesus, instead of things getting more prosperous and comfortable, it actually got more challenging. It got more complicated. So Paul spends a little bit of time in this passage. If you look just previous to the passage that's on the screen there, Paul spends a little bit of time reminding the Corinthians that just for a while, these lives that we're living now in the flesh, it's like living in a tent compared to the glorious houses that await us in Jesus' return. Amen. Um, but then we get this. Let's, let's just read it together. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the gift, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Interesting that when the Corinthians are struggling to believe that King Jesus really cares about them, Paul doesn't try to sugarcoat their challenges. And he's actually in jail when, when he's writing this letter. So he knows all about the challenges. Instead, he reminds them of what Christ has done, and then, in the midst of their challenges, he directs them to share the good news. He directs them to open their mouths and evangelize, good newsify. He directs them to good newsify each other, to, to speak the wonders of God to their neighbors and to people far away, as if that was for their sake, as if talking about the wonders of God was good for them. Because it is. And you know that. I know you know that. I feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you guys were a choir this morning. 
And, and, and I was blessed to hear how you praise the Lord. And you know, I know many of you know, that you're blessed just to open your mouth and give praise to God for what he's done. Every creature that praises God in this book, whether that creature be from heaven or from earth, is not doing it under Slavic compulsion. I didn't check every passage, but I checked a lot of them. They're not, they're not doing it because God made them praise Him. They're doing it because they cannot contain the joy of the Lord when they're in His presence. Your soul was made to find joy in the presence of the most wonderful thing that is possible in existence. I think that's already been said this morning by someone else. The most wonderful thing that is possible in existence. God Almighty, the Sovereign King, Lord Supreme. How can we thank you enough? It's not haughty or hubris for God to save you so that you would find joy in praising Him. In fact, it would be hellish for us if God didn't save you to praise Him. It would deprive you of the greatest joy that you can know. But instead, He's shown grace and humility in giving us a new heart that cries, Abba, Father, God, I love you. My wife is pretty, my wife is pretty humble. I can say that because she's not here. And I love her. I love talking about her. I love talking about what's great about her. And that doesn't hurt her. And she finds joy knowing that I find joy in her. That's a really healthy relationship. And it's the same with that king. But better, so much better. Because we're no longer, he's given us this new heart. We're no longer infected by pride, always focused on what what I have or what I do and whether or not God will take it or accept it. In Christ, you're free to worship King Jesus for all that he is and all that he does. Your focus has been changed. So whatever you have been worshiping up until this point, whatever you valued most, whatever you put your worship in, it doesn't come close to Jesus, right? No human can ever finish praising God. It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen on the great day when Jesus returns or any time after that. We're never going to finish doing that because the joy of the Lord is indescribable, inexpressible. We just keep learning more and praising Him more and more. Praise the Lord. All right. I'm just going to read this passage. How about that? And then we'll be done. Maybe I'll say an extra thing. I don't know. <laughs> it's in Peter, so it's 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse... We'll start at verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result. Get this. Just like if you, if you missed all of that because you were thinking about something else, get this. God, all of this challenge in our life tests us for what result, Peter? Where was I? Oh, yes. For what result, Peter, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ? The first time I read that, I don't know how I thought this. The first time I read that, I was like, oh, great. I get tested, and if I stand the test, I get praise and honor and glory. (laughs) Can you imagine? Jesus is revealed, the King of heaven is revealed. And I get praise and honor and glory. But Peter's talking about the reward for our faith, being that we get to give praise and honor and glory to Jesus. This is Peter, you know, the fisherman who spent three years following Jesus around and then Jesus left. And and he started doing what Jesus told him to do and then he died for it. And this Peter just can't wait until he can praise Jesus more in fullness. That's good. I'll leave it there. I think there might be one or two people here that, um, that really struggle with this. That really, even though maybe you're happy to be a part of a community that is centered around love and hope and peace and joy. You really struggle with the idea that God is humble, but also we spend hours praising him. Or maybe you struggle with the idea that um, we just have to go on and on and on praising God. Maybe you haven't yet experienced the joy of your salvation. Maybe you believe and you just haven't yet experienced the joy of your salvation. So I'm going to pray for you right now. And then Tina, you're going to come and we're going to sing. So I'll pray for you right now. Maybe you can pray as well, um, just quietly to yourself. And if that's you, if you feel that way, if you feel like you're struggling to find joy in praising God, then acknowledge that before him. I'm not going to ask you to lift your hand or bob your head or something. I just want you to be honest with yourself and acknowledge that while we bow our heads to pray. Father, what joy it is that we get to receive the gift of worshiping you forever. But God, we live in a world that is immersed in distractions and that's always telling us that it's about us, number one, 
And sometimes we forget, we lose sight, or we're, our sight is clouded that you are number one and that there is no greater joy than you. And so, God, I ask especially uh, for the people here that are struggling to find their joy in the Lord's salvation. God, I ask that this week, even now, God, as they sit and, and ponder these things and pray, God, I ask that you would bless them with the joy of your salvation, that you would open their eyes to see the great price that Jesus has paid, and that in that they would feel so loved and so cherished and so cared for by the King of creation that they will learn to rise up, to open their mouth and praise the Almighty King. And I ask that in your precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen?